Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is a big one for me. Uh, it was my birthday yesterday, so I'm treating myself by sharing with you my recent interview with the notable producer, Chris Hughes, or Chris Merrick Hughes. Regular listeners know that Chris is in my top five favorite producers of all time. He's done so much stuff that really matters to me. Let me give you a quick history lesson. So Chris starts out as the drummer in Adam and the Ants. That's why you're listening to Ant Rap right here. Marco, Merrick, Terry Lee, Gary Tibbs, and yours truly. Merrick, that's Chris Hughes. And think about how important the drum sound was to those early Adam Ant albums. Huge! That's Chris playing the drums. Well, he produces those albums. Prince Charming, King of the Wild Frontier... And this leads to other gigs. And among those other gigs, for instance, are the first two Tears for Fears albums, The Hurting and Songs from the Big Chair. We talk about both those in here, as well as a ton of other people. For instance, there's Wang Chung, there's Redbox, there's Paul McCartney, there's Robert Plant, there's Peter Gabriel, there's Howard Jones. All of these people come up in here. We hear stories about all of them. Now, I will tell you, This conversation happened in two parts. So if around the Paul McCartney section, it starts, you start hearing us reference things that we've already talked about as if we hadn't talked about them before, that's my fault. Because I kind of forgot that in the first conversation, these things have been touched on. That's why. I'm just letting you know. It's not his fault. Anyway, huge thanks to former guest Dave Bascom for putting in a good word for me. I've been trying to get Chris on here for five years. And it finally happened. And we get to talk about some of my favorite albums of all time and yours too. Anyway, this was a huge deal for me. I love Chris so much. He called me from his home in Ashley, which is in Wilshire, England. He explains it in here. Now, I've been trying to think how I want to kick this off. And I'm curious what you think about this. So a couple of years ago, I did a show with a buddy of mine where we were counting down our top five producers of all time. Uh-huh. And you were number four on my list. Wow. Yeah. And um, thank you. Yes, you bet. And it, so, and let me tell you who else was on this list. It was Quincy Jones. My and then, goodness. Yes. And then you, and then Nile Rogers, and then Steve Lillywhite, and then Trevor Horn. And one of the things that occurred to me as I was putting this list together is that all those other four guys, I know an album they've produced the second I hear it. In most cases, you yes. know what I mean? Yes. They have a yes. signature sound. Yes. You, on the other hand, I wouldn't say that I recognize a Chris Hughes produced 
album right away. It's just that everything you make sounds so good to me. And I wondered what you thought your signature sound was, if there even is one. Okay, well, that's a great question. And to start the answer, I would say that when I was growing up and the idea of being producer came to me, I was, you know, very aware of people like Todd Rundgren, Mm -hmm. who were essentially strong artists in their own right that wanted to produce. And I was very aware of the most of the productions he did, or that he's a genius and et cetera. Mm -hmm. Most of the work he did sounded like him, Mm. not enough like the artist. And sometimes Mm. I felt that the artist becomes a sort of vehicle for a producer wanting to do his own thing, which is fine, which is fine, but not really what I wanted to do. And my, my approach, I suppose, has been let's get the thing breathing and rhythmically in a good place. Let's look at the intention of the energy in the song. Um, let's look at how the rhythm is going to be built, what the elements are, whether mm-hmm. the artist is really capable of understanding the nature of you know, the jump or the pulse of a song and the emotion that's involved in the rhythm. Uh, mm-hmm. or whether they're just quite happy to let someone else kind of get that bit of it working. Mm-hmm. So one of the, if there is a signature at all, it's not necessarily in how it sounds, it's in an attitude about how the rhythm mm-hmm. and flow of the track works. And I always build from that point up. Okay. So if the basis is kind of jumping well, um, then the rest of it kind of follows on from there. So it's definitely, definitely in the rhythm first. That has to come from your drumming background, don't you think? Yes, yes. I mean, okay. as a kid, as a kid, I listened to, in my front lounge at home, I listened to, um, obviously, I listened to Charlie Watts. I listened to Ringo. Mm. You know, those guys were just, you know, I just studied what they did all the time. And then there became loads more. You know, obviously, as I got older, I, um, I got a chance to see John Bonham and listen to him. Mm. And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the list is endless. So, yes, from an early age, I was very interested in, you know, for example, Charlie Watts drumming on the Stones version of Route 66. Listen to how how he played that and just thought that is so beautifully played. And the rest of the band are just jumping on top of what he's doing. So I was very, very sensitive to the idea of rhythm 
and drumming and the pulse and how people can respond to that. You know, similarly, Ringo, I mean, he, you know, yeah. that guy, there's footage of the Beatles in, in Japan, I think in 66, it's color footage and it's obviously live. They're doing a the show. Mm -hmm. And if you watch, get a chance to watch what Ringo's doing. I mean, he is swinging. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's live. Mm -hmm. It's there in the moment. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's just beautifully played and really impressive. So those guys started me off. And huh. then, you know, then I got involved in uh, listening to jazz and, you know, you name it. I mean, the, yeah. the list goes on and on. Well, it's interesting. Okay. So, let me let me push back on this a little bit because sure. obviously you start out in Adam and the Ants and their yes. so, their sound is the Burundi drum so, sound. Yes, I've yes. had Marco on here a couple of times to talk mm -hmm. about it actually. Now that drum sound is what people love about Adam and the Ants. I mean, it's the songs and it's Adam, yeah. but it's the that unique sound is so yeah. different, and we love that. But I everything you're saying, you didn't even list. You didn't even say, and then punk came along and changed everything. You're talking yeah. about jazz and Charlie Watts and everything. Yeah. So, is the was the Burundi sound that you know gave all you guys your start? Was that did that feel at all limiting to you, or was that a yeah. lot of fun? I don't know. Oh, it was great. This is this is kind of what happened. I met Adam uh, at a point. I mean, this is a very long story, John, but I, I'll, okay. I'll, try and, I'll try and get to a, <laughs> a sort of <laughs> a shortened version. There was a point in Adam's career where he left or was asked to leave or left behind the first version of Adam Nance mm -hmm. and they all went off with Malcolm McLaren yep. and, became, bow, wow, wow. and became Bow Wow Wow. The week that happened, I, um, I won't go into the whole detail, but I bumped into Adam and he, you know, I was talking about producing and making records and recording and I was just starting off and it was like something I was interested in. And he basically said, well, if you think you're any good, you can record me and Marco. We're ready to go. We want to get a record out real soon. And I, I said, yeah, okay, we can do that. And he said, yeah, you know, I just want the whole vibe and the whole feel of it to be like, you know, um, like African Burundi. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm your man. <laughs> I've, got, <laughs> I've got the original French field recordings, because I was hugely into Burundi and the whole nature of, you oh, know, yeah. African drumming as a pulse and then a carrier message and the whole bit, you know, it was really, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I said, I, I know how to play this. I've listened to mm -hmm. this for years. I love it. And I think he was thrilled that, you know, there was someone he could instantly talk to mm -hmm. that stood it and got it. And so we, you know, we we started recording he, you know he said let's let's do something so you know by the end of the week we were basically booked into um studio and we started from there and then you know when it came to layering the sound and getting that ants drum sound i mean on the for example on the track kings of the world frontier it's mm -hmm. it's like i think 13 complete stacked bounced tracks of drum set
and and the, the you know the, the tom toms so without getting too technical the tom toms have got <clears throat> a little bit in the in the tone okay in the tone of them they've got a little bit too much um mid-range um that's been sort of lifted and made mm -hmm. slightly, slightly harder and slightly more sort of hits you in the face so uh, uh, which is quite hard and then when you layer over and over and over dub the same thing it kind of um warms out slightly so you've got this thing which is essentially aggressive and hits you in the face but there's a warmth to it as well mm. and uh, that you know that you can hear that specifically on things like dog eat dog and and king yeah. frontier and, and tracks like that and funnily enough okay. the day before yesterday a very good friend of mine steve barney who's a fantastic drummer he sent me uh, a link to a recording of um, Flea and John from um, the Red Hot Chilies playing uh -huh. records, and they they talked about when they were growing up how influential Adam the Ants album really was. yeah and Kings of Wild Frontier <laughs> was to them. I had no idea, but wow. um, so I was I'm, I'm totally thrilled. Yeah, with those guys coming I mean, they're monsters. Those guys, you know. Yeah, they are. So I yeah. I'm so thrilled that they even have heard of us, you know. Well, it's a, it's a sound unlike anything else. I mean, yes, Bow Wow Wow was out there doing something similar, but you guys sure. nailed it. And um, that's, I think, what makes those albums so timeless is that there's never been anything like it. And if anyone who tried wasn't doing it quite as well, you know. Yeah. I am curious. What, okay, so there's a production you did. I love the song Make, it Cir Make Circuit With Me by the Polecats. Oh, my and God. I think and I think you produced that, right? I love that song. How and I'm, great. Wondering, I'm wondering if the Polecats came to you. I, I'm guessing they're from a similar kind of, I don't know, pool of talent. You know, they're they're not that far removed from Adam and that sound. And that, they, they have come to you great. saying, we want something similar. Well, I think those guys were, on, you know, if you will, those guys were on the scene at the time. You know, they were yeah. around and they yeah. were doing their thing. And, you know, there was, you know, the Stray Cats were a kind of... A, a thing anyway and, and, and we were doing a thing and and the polecats kind of came in and had some rocking tunes and i forget how it happened but somebody spoke to somebody and then the next thing we were kind of just yeah. recording together and it was easy they were good okay. guys they knew what they were doing they could play it was fun you know didn't it it didn't take very long uh -huh. i enjoyed it and um i think boz who has been uh, involved with Marco and certainly knows Adam 
Um, uh -huh. He's, he's uh, he was involved in that record, and yeah, it was nice working with him. Okay, great. yeah, I love that song. I, oh, that's um, nice. That's nice to know. Yeah, and uh, okay, so let let me just continue to kind of faint all over you here for a minute. Uh, <laughs> one of the most amazing albums, let alone like debut albums I've ever heard, is Redbox Circle in the Square. Oh my and goodness. you worked on that one too. And it is one of the most amazing bursts of creativity I've ever heard. Every song on that album sounds like it comes from a different part of the world. And yet, and I've had Simon on here to talk about it, and I still can't figure it out. Where did this come from? How, I mean, and so, I mean... Was there a partnership where, when you were working with them? Was Simon coming in saying, I want 12 different songs from 12 different points of the earth? Or how did this even happen? No, I, my my read on that, I mean, Simon remains a good friend from, you know, we did it years back. But, um, yeah. uh, he, you know, he remains a good friend and he sends me things he's working on. And he takes, you know, four years to to. to to get something how he wants uh -huh. it, and, you know, he, in a sense, it's, I know, I know. In a sense, he's in no rush, but he's a fantastic, fantastic perfectionist, and I say that in the most positive of ways because he will know what he wants, and he will strive and strive to get something how he wants it, mm. and uh, and I I love him for that. It's amazing work he does. He is definitely the, the sort of captain of that ship. I forget actually how I met Simon, but uh, he'd, he'd been working trying to get a few things um, to make sense, mm. and I think I got sent some demos. And there's, I mean, to this day, there's there's some demos he did uh, with Julian that are so, you know, you know, sometimes when you make a demo, it, it's it doesn't have any of the pressure to be mm. a great record. It just mm -hmm. has to sort of express the nature of the song. And he did a bunch of demos, which were amazing. Uh, and almost by accident, um, he managed to convey incredible feelings. And it was very organic. It was kind of ahead of the whole kind of um, world music kind yeah. of pattern. He just naturally had an interest in the spirit of different musics, you know. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean yeah. for example, he had a, he had a, a version um, of... Uh, the song Saskatchewan, which which mm. I don't think's ever come out, which is absolutely beautiful. So there was a he was doing fantastic work, mm. and you know I spent a bit of time hanging with the guys and and um, you know being involved on some level. But to be honest, the the thing I focused on the most was the single. You know, yeah. So I, I spent a lot of time on that, and then I was around and and you know they got on with other bits and pieces. But yeah. I was very proud of the nature of it when it came out. I thought, wow, this is, this is, this is, this is strong. It's a strong piece of work. Yeah. And then, is. then I really enjoyed hearing it on the radio because it was, you know, it was a, became a popular tune. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thrilled to be a mate of his. So. Good. good. The single we should say is lean on me. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Correct.
I just I find that album to be just a complete miracle. Yeah. I uh, I think it's incredible, and uh, that, that all of that came from the mind of somebody. Someone thought of all that stuff, and yeah, you're involved. I, mean, I just can't believe it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think I have to say I think Simon, you know, he's he's a he's quite a thinker. He's yeah. quite a, he's quite a dreamer, and you know, he does move mountains with his work. I think he you does. Yeah, yeah, I love him. Yeah. Okay. He's great. I feel like you've been talking about Tears for Fears a lot lately, especially Big Chair. So I'm not I'm not going to make you go down those roads for the millionth <laughs> okay. time. But I do I am curious. I mean, I you know, everybody loves Tears for Fears, especially those first two albums. And yeah. uh, one thing I so in getting ready to talk to you, I was reading an an art uh an interview you did where you were counting down the most important things to know when you're a music producer. And one of them, the number one thing was to establish the bubble. I thought that was yes. a really interesting way of basically creating a creative space where everyone involved can be creative and vulnerable and fail and feel and I, full of ideas and yet also sort of naked, but also sort of whatever it takes for you to get the best ideas out, including failing on some of those ideas. It's so important to have this bubble. That's exactly That's correct. You've got that exactly correct. Okay. Yeah. And I'm ima- I'm reading that and I'm imagining I'm thinking about the progress of, of the progression of sound that Tears for Fears had and a lot of these other bands too over the course of especially those first 3 albums. And I'm wondering yeah. if this if those if those guys came to you and you were merely kind of recording their ideas or if this bubble that you talk about is where a lot of that creativity took flight. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And the answer is, it's both. Okay. Uh, I mean, on, on some level, Tears for Fears, those, essentially those two guys, Kurt mm-hmm. and Ron, they are super talented. And they, um, not always, but they generally know what they want. Mm-hmm. And these days, you know, they know how to get what they want. And it's, you know, a, a breeze and they kind of yeah. do, do what they do back in the day you know i'd come from my period of time with with the ants and uh was kind of you know knowing what i was doing and things for me were going well and those guys are they're like seven years younger than me <laughs> and they still are <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, they would ask me what I thought about things and they would discuss stuff. And honestly, John, the amount of sort of psychology and theoretical ideas and thinking were always, always in the room, mm. you know. So take, a, for example, when we did Mad World, and we did Mad World very, very early on. All
one of the first things I worked mm. on. Roland had a demo of how that should be. And on a lot of levels, um, it's kind of not it's similar on some levels, but it's a it's a beautiful demo expressing how he felt the song should be and how far he got it. So he was quite capable of recording and, and overlaying instruments and, you know, making a demo. Mm -hmm. He's very, very talented in that respect. Mm -hmm. And I listened to it and I thought, yeah, this, yeah, this is complex. It's quite dense. And the emotion in it is, there's not quite the right amount of pathos in it, but, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, you know. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we, just set, we just set to um, rebuilding it um, and maybe this, this, this sound, uh, this balance might express that feeling better or this synth could be a bit more punchy or the little trumpet that goes did 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 could be a little bit mm -hmm. sharper and um, annoying. And, you know, we just discussed mm -hmm. stuff and rebuilt it. And I think the process of taking something which was, um, a, you know, quite a good demo mm -hmm. and for him to be confident enough to know that we weren't going to fuck it up and basically mm -hmm. make mm -hmm. it better. I think as it, as it as time went on and he saw that the new version was coming to life and was essentially good i think he's uh, i think he, he he ended up with a lot more trust you know so mm -hmm. and, and indeed you know you know we spent and have spent so much time together across across the years so it was became you know one learns with people you know and work with you set up the grammars everything's mm -hmm. there's shortcuts for what you mean there's a a nuance to an idea or you can look across the room and someone else will know how you're responding to something you know so all of that became quite well developed with okay those books, you know. okay so when they come along and then big chair I, I for I, my i think two of the songs that i like most on big chair are the ones they refuse to play which is mother's talk and and uh, working hour for yeah. whatever reason those don't sit well with them anymore and i i don't know why but yeah. um but they are, you know, working hour especially never would have appeared on that first album. It's a, it's a growth, it's a graduation and a, and a maturity that wasn't there. But it still sounds so perfect. One of the other things on that same list you talk about is knowing what to take out, you know, knowing when something is done and not messing with it or fussing with it any longer. Yeah. That's one of the hardest things to get right. Yeah. It, it's, it's definitely, if you're producing, you definitely have to keep an eye and an ear, obviously, on 
what we say, over-egging the pudding. Mm-hmm. You know, you can just work at something too much. And, I, you know, in the process of trying to find something and searching and trying to reach for the Holy Grail at times, you do, one does over-egg things and, and, you know, things sort of tip off the edge and then you have to bring them back. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing you have to be able to do is to stop a process. You can, sometimes you can go, guys, I'm stopping this for a minute because mm-hmm. it's gone off the boil. Mm-hmm. Here's why. And we can come back to it in a little while or we can understand what's gone wrong with it and change it now. I don't mm-hmm. know. You know. So there's, mm-hmm. a, there's quite a lot of um, sometimes you can just see, just see something on the potter's wheel about to wobble off. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You can just sense it. So, you know, and sometimes you get it right and sometimes it's tricky. I mean, I'll give, yeah. John, I'll give you a quick example. Please. In the, ca- in the case of Songs from the Big Chair, um, the, the track Shout, uh-huh. that took months. <laughs> it took months to get right. Uh-huh. And the mix was painful. Uh-huh. And, you know, it ended up how it ends up and how it sounds, and it comes bursting along. And and it was tricky. You know, it was definitely uh-huh. difficult. It was, there, there was work involved in making it work and sound good and all the rest of it. Everybody wants to rule the world, mixes itself. If you get that up on the desk and push the faders up to mid-desk, it sort of sounds great. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, yeah. that record took no time. That took Interesting. That took a week to kind of finish the writing and the playing and the mixing. It was, it was all very, very quick. And it was all, everything on, on that track is cohesive in the right way and doesn't need any salvage work. It all just flows and, and pieces together. And, and that was not over You know, that was like, yeah. it, it flowed through the room and, it, and we all got it and we all made it work. Shout, albeit it ended up being successful, was much tougher. And there yeah. was, there was over-egging and, you know, thinning of eggs as well. So yeah. that, that went in and out and down and round to try and get that right. You know. So so I'm curious that do you view the vinyl version of Shout that has been, you know, historic ever since? Do you view that as being as something that was over-egged? Or are you uh, comfortable with what is out there in the world, that vinyl I'm, version? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. I think it's... I think it's Personally, mm-hmm. I think personally it's stressed a bit. You know, it's, ah. it's over-egged in a, in a kind of just trying to get it. This is a personal view. Just trying to get it into a place where it's great uh-huh. and huge and doing all this sort of stuff. The pressure on it to be great is quite hard. And it, and it, it just is one of those records where it feels slightly over-egged. But ah. having said that, you know, I might have a, a, a personal criticism about a record. And then, you know, if the record goes on to do something and I hear it on the radio, the minute it's in the public domain, mm-hmm. I let go of it because people in the real world who hear it, who go, oh, yeah, I like this, they're, yeah. not, they're not concerned about what I got wrong. They, would, they probably yeah. wouldn't know. You know? Right. <laughs> so, so the minute I hear it, you know, if I hear a track, you know, on the radio, I think, oh, great. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Oh, it uh-huh. sounds all right. Yeah. What am I worried about? It's fine. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I've always felt like shout. I mean, it's an anthem and it's it's an effective one and it means so much to so many people. And I was just a kid. I was like 11 or 12 or something when that album came out. So it hit me hard. But it does sort of 
uh, like telescope its its uh, intentions. You know, we're going for an anthem here, folks, and you're yeah. going to come along for the ride, and it's going to be big, yeah. and we're not stopping. You know what yeah. I mean? It uh, it yeah, it tells you what it's going to do. Okay, let's. John, that, I, is, that is absolutely correct, and um, you may know this, you may not know this, but um, we, you know, it was very long. You know, at one one point, I think the record company uh, were insisting on fading it out. You know, mm -hmm. and that was um, that decision was made um, whilst we were working on "Everybody Wants to Rule the World." Mm. And there's a lyric in that song. So sad they had to fade it. Yeah. Which is a reference to shout being faded. Really? I've yeah. always wondered what that meant. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Oh, man. I had uh, Neil Taylor on here a few years ago, actually, and he we talked about his creating the guitar solo at the end of that song and that it's okay. two different takes kind of combined into one. And yeah. Anyway, it's just a work of genius. I, I mean, love it. Neil, I mean, Neil, Neil lives down the road from me. And, Does um, he really? Oh yeah, and he's just—he's uh, just one of those guys, sweet guy. I see him every now and again. We're good mates. It, it's good. always always fun to hang with him for a little while. Yeah. You know? No, he's great. And I love him. and that—I mean, you know—he was quite young when he came and did that. We mm -hmm. phoned him up, said, "Do you want to come come and do a bit of guitaring?" And um, yeah, we ran him the track, and he, he just went, "Oh yeah, okay," and and just played a couple of takes. Yeah. And we and we pieced, I mean it's basically two two chunks. Uh-huh. And it was a very, very inspired bit of guitaring. Yeah. You know. Yeah, he's a he's great. And he worked he played on so many other things too that we talked oh, about. Oh god, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, don't let that be his own his no. own moment because no, he's no, got he's, lots of them. He's he's a formidable guy. Yeah. Um, okay, just to round out the Tears for Fears part of the conversation, I got lots of other things I want to ask you about. But sure. what what is the story of Seeds of Love? Apparently, you were going to come in and produce that one too, and that you guys weren't getting along or weren't seeing things eye to eye. What what happened there? Um, what happened What happened was I worked as producer. I produced, and there's lots of my work in that record I for uh, for eleven months. Okay. And um, there came a point where I just thought particularly Roland Kurt was essentially fine and um, kind of watching the record sort of being made around I mean what I mean by that is he was he was around but he wasn't you know in on it at an atomic level right. quite quite in the same way as the first two um, and Roland was wanting the record to be a certain thing and he was looking at different ways of writing and he was working with other songwriters and the thing took on a kind of you know play him a a track by Little Feet, and then there'd be, and he'd like that, and there'd be a kind of a Little Feet kind of thing, or a, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of searching for the influences and searching for the way of doing things, and huh. I thought, I thought, well, it's great, but it's not like where you were writing songs because you couldn't help yourself. You uh -huh. know, when, you, when you wrote the Working Hour, that that was a song that totally made sense to you. Some of the songs on Sowing the Seeds, I felt, were very much like trying to be up with Steely Dan, trying to be up mm. with Little Feet, uh, mm. a lot of Americana, which is fine. Don't get me wrong. I love it. You know, I'm, sure. I'm hugely, you know, into that whole thing. Yeah. And we did Sowing the Seeds and, you know, I, I played the drums on that track. I worked a lot on getting that the right amount of Beatleness 
Mm-hmm. And you know, I spent. I spent <laughs> this. Yeah, I, I got, love that. That's I, true. Uh, got, yeah, got, so we got just enough. So it was, you know, and um, uh-huh. we got, we, and we did, you know, live takes at the townhouse in London, and <laughs> um, everybody playing, and it was very exciting to do the, the tracks. You know, I worked on Woman in Chains. You know, I worked on a lot mm-hmm. of it, and it just came out after about eleven months. I think I just thought. It's just, just not sort of. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There was a kind of fire, not a fire gone. That's not fair. There was just mm-hmm. thing that I didn't think I was delivering. Mm-hmm. And they were delivering, and it was all kind of a mm-hmm. bit by rote. And you know, I got a call saying, "Hey, you know, we're probably going to just plough on. Sort of, we'll, we'll keep going with Dave Bascom, who'd been engineering." Yeah. I went, guys. That's fine. And I, I just came out to New York and lived in New York for about three years. Really? Did other, did other things, you know, and I, I met Rick Akasic from the Cars and did an album with him. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I it was a good time for me to sort of leave. I, you know, I came back from New York a couple of times. I came in and saw how, what they were up to and how they were. And, um, you know, they were still working on it. And Yeah. And then there was, I was doing some stuff in New York and I came out to LA for some things and they were in LA putting um, some Paul Buckmaster strings on a few things and mm. I was hanging out with her. So, you know, I keep in touch and yeah, I was, in okay. touch with, I was in touch with Roland in March. We were going to try and hang out middle March, but um, this COVID thing just kicked, yeah. that, kicked that into the long grass. It sure did. Well, yeah. that's good. Okay, so there's not... You guys are still in touch. There's no oh, animosity there. It's no, just this no, project no. isn't working for either of us anymore. No, okay. No animosity. And, you know, I've been to their, their, their big O2 gig in mm-hmm. London, the biggest gig they've done in, in England. Mm-hmm. And I was at the Albert Hall, for the, and which was sensational. It was great. So, mm-hmm. and, and we parted afterwards. So it's all good. Yeah, good. No, good. No animosity at all. No. Good. Okay. So Rick Ocasek was on my list of people to ask you about as well. Oh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Emotions in Motion is a really sweet song off of that yeah. album. curious what that was like because he went on to be his own really excellent producer as well and so it's almost i wondered if he even needed you so what what's the dynamic like between the two of you there it was quite interesting in that respect because i think rick was i mean he's an amazing songwriter Mm -hmm. first and foremost he's an amazing songwriter and has a good sense of what he you know 
what for him the song should feel and sound like and actually doesn't move that much from the car's dna mm-hmm. it's true it, it, yeah. it, that the, that same piece of okasic dna goes through everything mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's and he said to me he goes you know most most songwriters have got 10 songs <laughs> and then just and then they just kind of you know re kind of work them yeah yeah which is fine that's a, a uh-huh. wonderful way of looking at the kind of the simplicity and the complexity of that you know i mean i i loved it so you know he he was living around the we did it in in um, electric ladyland in mm. in new york and he was living around the corner and uh, we just you know set to work and got people in to to do bits of playing and Mm-hmm. You know, most of the cars came down and did some stuff. I, I was quite friendly with Tom Verlaine from television. Oh, nice. Tom's a, yeah. good, Tom's a good guy. I'm very fond of Tom. And he came down, did a bit of guitaring and hung out. Um, but, you know, it was, it was New York in that period and people would stop by. I mean, Neil Young stopped by. He didn't play. No way. Yeah, Neil. I mean, it was mental. I was working away on something. Um, and I, I had a Synclavier system, as a you know, computer keyboard. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, I look up through the door, and the, the door into the studio is kind of glass, and there's this tall, dark silhouette figure in a poncho. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he walks in. It's Neil Young, and he's he's got a full length Mexican poncho <laughs> on, but underneath that. He's got like a, an immaculate Italian soup. You know, <laughs> it's like super sharp. Uh, and he comes in, takes his poncho off, and, and he sits down and he, he basically goes, Hey, yeah, you've got a Synclav. Yeah, I've got one. Um, I was thinking of doing some kind of synthetic strings and then maybe putting a power trio around it. Yeah, it's fun. And we sat and chatted about tech. And, really? And, yes. And guitar. I mean, Rick wasn't there. He popped out for the afternoon. He was doing something else. <laughs> and Neil, Neil, Neil swung by. I guess they hooked. Well, they did hook up later. Uh, yeah, so I had a, you know, wow. a, lovely, a lovely encounter with Neil. And then Debbie Harry on another day would swing by. And of course, would, yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> so, you were probably you know, loving your move to New York at that point. Like, wow, look who's just uh, out and about in my oh, in front of me. You know, I know. And I mean, it's one of those things. You get it in LA, and you get it in New York. There's a scene where it sort of floats along and people sort of bumble into each other and things sort of happen. And I, I sort of accidentally plugged into it, you know? Yeah. 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 That was great. Oh, that's wild. Um, okay. Let's talk. I, I, there's a couple more I want to ask you about real quick. Sure. Howard Jones. Howard cross, that, cross that line.
Talk about mature works. This was uh, another example of a guy who had built his career on being very synth-driven, yes. who is now maturing in front of our eyes. And that album has, you know, Everlasting Love on it, which is a Indeed. huge hit and everything. But it's a different sound. It's not as synth-driven as before. And I'm wondering when... I'm a huge... I love Howard so much. And I... Uh, that song is, or that album is such a progression. When he comes to you and he hires you to produce that album, does he say, "I'm look, I'm trying to move away from the synths," or do no. you, you come to a decision together, or what? What happens? No, no. it was unbelievably. Uh, sort of, I mean, that one uses the word, but it was an organic development. You know, it was neither of us said, "Hey, let's focus more on this. Let's focus less on that." I think what happened was it was just a place in his creativity and a place in his career where that record just flowed, made sense. That's kind of how he wanted it to be. And it was, okay. you know, it was just super easy to commune with. I mean, I've known Howard a long time and he's a super mate of mine. So, yeah. and I've been, I've been involved with him and he's done bits for piano playing for me. And there's an album he's done of um, beautiful piano solos. Uh, and he dedicated one of the pieces to me and, you nice. know, he, Oh, no, he's a, he's a top, top guy. Yeah. Uh, and his work's always, always evolving and developing. It is. Uh, and so at the point where we were hanging out, we decided to do some tracks and, and you know, I'd go over to his place in Maidenhead, which isn't far, and mm. um, do some work and make suggestions. And, yeah, perhaps it could be like that. And just, it's kind of like just, in the case of Howard, he's such a mate that it's like mm -hmm. you just go in and commune with the guy. It's really? Yes, it's easy. It's so easy because, you know, he's so competent. If you say, well, could we try that, you know, two semitones up? Mm. Could, we try it? could we try that just a bit faster? He's there. He'll just mm. be able to transpose and play it faster. You know, mm. he's got all of that under his fingers. So he's got a phenomenal musical mind. So yeah. work, working with him is, is a breeze. Good. It's just, he, um... it's just a... It's common sense and straightforward with him. It's did, just you two, did you two know each other before he hired you and this, and oh, he yeah. knew that vibe and that's why he wanted you around? I don't know. I certainly uh, knew him. We were mates before we worked on that, yeah. And funnily enough, I hung out with him in New York a bit when he was there because he, oh. he had, a, he had a, a vegetarian restaurant. That's right. Yeah, and, uh, that was around the corner from where I was living in New York. So I saw him in New York and hung out with him in New York, and and yeah, we were just kind of mates and kept Good. in touch. And then at some point, we just yeah, let's do something, you know. Okay, okay, yeah, I I love him. I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah, and I don't know if you know this, but he is huge in Salt Lake City, Utah. He comes there and he sells out like big outdoor, outdoor amphitheaters. And so he knows what he's doing. He comes through there as often as he can. Oh, yeah. And uh, for whatever reason, he's huge there. And uh, so, yeah, I, I love him. Always have. Oh, no, he's, he's, he's as we say in the trade, he is no clot. That guy really knows what he's yeah. doing. Good. And, and, and he's, also, he's also one of the nicest people in the business. Seems like it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, good. Okay, let's talk about Wang Chung for a minute. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I've had Jack on here a couple of times, and uh, I love him, and Points on a Curve is a great album, and that was the one that broke them through. I'm wondering what you, how did you two, how did you three, I should say, come together to create that work? What, again, I, I'm kind of going into the ideas that are 
Are things being created in the studio? Are they seeking you out and saying, we have an idea? Because they were fairly obscure before this album, and then that's the one that you know broke them wide. How did yeah. you do that? This is, this is a really good question, because I think my manager at the time said, um, okay, so Wang Chung, um, some, someone from Wang Chung's office had been in touch, and they'd like to meet you. So they came over to my house. This is when I was living in, in London, in South London. And they came over to the house one afternoon, the three of them. It was Jack, and it was Darren, and um, Nick. We call him Sheld, but yeah, Nick. <laughs> they came up to the house, and um, Jack and I, I think, became instant mates. Mm. You know, like you meet someone and you just think, oh, they're great. Mm-hmm. They just got good wavelength, and you, you'll chat to them next time, and you think, oh, another thing I meant to mention. And oh, yeah, I was thinking of this, and blah, blah. All yeah. that stuff. Jack and I, we did that to the point where we are such good mates that his mm-hmm. son and my daughter are having a baby next month. What? Yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So Jack Jack is, as we call, Jack is family. Now he's family. It's a good no, thing you Jack, do get along. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. So we're, we're going to be, we're going to be granddads uh-huh. <laughs> of the same the same grandchild <laughs> next month yeah so anyway yeah, to get wow. <laughs> to get back wow. to the music sorry John. that's great that's to the get, best <laughs> to get back to the music um yeah they you know we sat in my house and we chatted for hours about you know everything from shostakovich through to jack bruce and you name it you know we just miles davis yeah. you know anything that was worth hanging some kind of tiny few minute conversations on we'd do it and it was just exhausting and exhilarating and i was thrilled to hear that they wanted to work with me so they went off and then went yeah yeah you know let's do something and um so yeah we um we started working we we did a large amount of that record in abbey road oh really okay yeah yeah it was great It, it it was one of those records john that took a long time just to define what we were trying to do and mm, get it right. Yeah. Um, it, it, I wouldn't say it was a record that came easy in the sense of like bass player, drummer, keyboard player, let's mm-hmm. go. It mm-hmm. was a lot of invention and um, uh, experimenting with uh, early computer synths, like Fairlights were being used. There's a lot of overdubbing and it's, it, it wasn't a record that was made where there was a band yeah. All, all ready, like a four or five piece band, all ready to do takes and all knew what they were playing. It was largely um, by discussion and experimentation and overdubbing and, you know, and, and Jack's mind on, you know, how he thought things should go. You okay. know, yeah. And, you know, and there was latitude. <clears throat> I mean, there were certain things that, you know, I pushed for and certain things he wanted to be a certain way, but we basically saw eye to eye on everything. Yeah. He, I, you know, since getting to know him a little bit the last couple of years, I find he's a real, uh, he's kind of a mystery to me because it's clear, as you mentioned from the conversations you were having, what a true jazzer he is. And his solo work reflects this. That's where he goes when he wants to make the music that's solely for him. But 
Wang Chung, especially in those early, those first few albums, are so commercial. They're so they're pop songs. They're but they're great. I mean, they're they're an example of what the best pop songs of that era could be. Yeah. And I wonder. I've always wondered. Like, he just. It's just such a like dichotomy. There's just two personalities there. There's the real Jack who wants to make his jazz albums, and and prog albums, and then there's the you know the the popular Jack that makes these great pop albums, and they're so that's, different. That's very very true. And the dichotomy, as you say gets even more complex because when we use the term the the real jack that wants to do this etc etc the the great thing is they're both the real jack mm. you know, his yeah. his understanding of the nature of harmony and like pop record chord progression he has all that in droves he totally mm. he totally understands the nature of how you can have you know pop music chord substitutions and make the thing emote because yeah. it's got all that under his fingers got it you could okay. go to you could go to an a minor but we could do this and you go oh man that's mind-blowing mm -hmm. so he's got he's got all of that and if you i mean he and i <laughs> talk i mean we are we one thing we argue about is mm. um the beatles because we are we actually sort of challenge each other about who knows more about the Beatles? You know? Oh, really? <laughs> oh, God, John, it's pathetic. We're grown men. <laughs> but, uh, and, you know, he was, he's was he been writing columns about the Beatles and Beatles music, and he knows that I have opinions about the way things went and go and all that sort of stuff. And it's just it's just one of those fantastic things. And he was, and he was saying, not long ago, actually, he was saying, no, 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 listen, with the Beatles, it really, it's about the music. You know, it's just, the, it, let's just work from the premise that it's the music. And I'm saying, but Jack, the music, there's nothing to get hung about. <laughs> A John lyric, and he's going, oh, shut up. You know, so we have this endless thing. I yeah. mean, you know, on, on one level, he's right. Because if it wasn't for the melodic chord progressions and the nature of the music you'd be in a mess but lyrically they were brilliant as well so I, it has to be it has to be equal measure for me mm -hmm. okay they, sorry john that's a bit of a uh, no that's this is uh, all the color i love this is what exactly what i love one thing i want to mention though is that when i listen to obviously your solo work there's the same dichotomy that's going on in Jack Hughes happening yes. in, within you. Yes. I can't think, I don't know that another punk from that early scene would have made an album like Shift.
and I'm right. listening to Shift, and, imme- and the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, Steve Reich. Okay. Yeah, yeah I get it. Yeah. And uh, then I read later that that was the idea, that it was like a tribute to Steve Reich's drumming album. And I love that stuff. And I'm just yeah. thinking, uh, once again, here's another guy who starts out as a punk in the Burundi drums, but when he makes his own music, he follows Steve Reich. No one does yeah. that in the pop world. Yeah. Where, where does this come from for you? I think, I think that Steve Reich is so important yeah. in, in every sense. And I saw him live in 1972 performing drumming. It was the first time it was performed in Europe. Mm. And I could barely speak for about yeah. a week. Yeah. I thought, oh my God, drums, drumming. It's just huge. And I just loved it. And then when I when I um, was at my studio, which is a, the kind of the Tears for Fears place called the Wool Hall out in the country, mm-hmm. I I was between projects and I'd sort of done a bunch of stuff and I was quite happy and I thought, yeah, I'll just I'll just program some some bits and pieces. I always wanted to hear how certain bits of Reich's ideas phased if you do if you apply mm-hmm. a kind of mathematics to it. And so I got all the sheet music of, you know, all uh, uh, to that point, all the stuff that was published. And I, you know, I had a look at it and thought, yeah, I can, I can do the maths here. I can shift mm-hmm. this piece across this piece and see how it works. And, you know, I just did a whole bunch of uh, demos, a whole bunch of rough ideas. And then there was an opportunity um, to um, go to Steve Rice's apartment in New York. Mm. So I met him. And that was that was extraordinary because wow. I told him kind of what I wanted to do, and you know, I played him a few pieces of of, of his that were kind of the demos that I'd sort of shifted and moved around a bit. And I played him bits and pieces, and he and he went, uh, okay, mm-hmm. okay, okay, okay. And I said, well, I said those are they're quite literal. I've taken the dots from the music and they're kind of literal, but I've done some variations and sort of some experiments and, and moved a few ideas around and put them, put them into another kind of place. And I played those and, and he went, yeah, great, 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 mm. great, great. Follow me, follow me. And he took me into his back room and he pulled down. He goes, have you heard this? I said, no. He said, you need to hear this. He just gave me various records and, I was scribbling notes and he pulled down a fanfold artist proof complete score of uh, drumming. He gave me oh, the whole thing. No way. It's, yeah, it's absolutely priceless, beautiful thing. And um, he said, you might want to, if, you, if you're going to do, if you're going to work on drumming, he goes, you really need to listen to it and listen to it a lot because you don't want to be flippant about what you add. Wow. I thought, I thought oh, fucking hell. You know, oh, right. um, wow. Yeah, I know, I know. And um, so, and, and he said, yeah, great. And, um, you know, he showed me his marimbas and various things he had in his back room. And, you know, uh, and it was just mind-blowing. Wow. You know, he showed me um, prints mm. on his wall that were, you know, to Steve, love, Sol Lewitt, and, you know, just unbelievable. Wow. Uh, unbelievable sort of couple of hours in at his place. And, um, yeah, so 
Uh, so that's, that's that's like Jesus handing you the Holy Grail. Yes. <laughs> you know, here come on in. To my, here come on into my private lair here. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, one of the things that's great about Steve, I guess, is the fact that you know he is great, and he knows he's great, mm. and he knows people think he's great. Uh-huh. So he's very, very comfortable with having someone come over who's gushing. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, so he was quite. He was quite. Good. You know, he was quite relaxed about. Yeah, this is all going well. I'm great. Everything's great. Yeah, listen to this. This yeah. is great. So it was very, very enjoyable. And then I got, came back to, to England and um, finished it all up. And, you know, I sent him a copy when it was finished. And went, yeah, yeah, some of these tunes are great. Uh, there's a couple of things I wasn't sure about. Uh, lots mm. of love, Steve, you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I thought that was amazing work on your part. And it was so Thank obviously you. influenced by him. And I think he's amazing, yes. too. Yes. Yeah. And uh, again. I, you know, I'm so so pleased i did it yeah so pleased i made that record for a lot of reasons you know i mean i really enjoyed making it and and experimenting and pushing things around no pressure no time no finance no issue and so it was it was a great sort of uh, time to reflect and just do something i wanted to do it wasn't about being commercial it was nothing to do with that it was all like just let me be in this little place for a while and uh weirdly you know, there's a piece on it called um, Slow Motion Blackbird, which um, gets played on BBC Radio 3 over here, which is a kind of really? arts arts kind of radio station. And it gets played and acknowledged and, and the reference to Steve Wright is mentioned. So, on, yeah, I know. So on that level, a, a record I made in my own time, in my own shed, as it were. Yeah. Uh, sort of worked for me, despite the fact that I, what, that wasn't the intention. It was just to, yeah. literally to have no pressure for it to be anything other than, you know, kind of what it was. Okay. Um, and then similarly, is it Irenic Life? Yes.
I read it. Uh, that's the, weirdly enough, that's the American spelling of the word ironic, which um, base, ironic basically means um, in search of peace. Ah, if, if okay. something's If something's ironic, it's, I mean, it originally came from a kind of slightly religious thing, but that wasn't my, in, my interest didn't lie with that. But yeah, um, ironic is spelt I-R-E-N-I-C and mm. E-I. And uh, I believe the American way of spelling it is with an E. And it, okay. just, it, just, it just felt like, yeah, I want, it, I want it to be ironic like that. Okay. And are you, um, I mean, I'm imagining you're having to hire an orchestra. Are you working in like a giant studio employing, you know, 50 P a 50 piece orchestra paying for all these people. It sounds expensive. No. It sounds like a big undertaking. Thank you. It, it actually wasn't. I've got a studio here and most of the core of that record is computer based with mm. performance and overdubs and you know, I'd play some and select a piece and then work on that and then um, copy and adjust and edit. And it was a labor of love in terms of um, audio and computers. And so there's real pianos, there's um, synth pianos, uh, there's sequencing and there's real performance. And then mm. there's bits of strings and other orchestral bits and pieces that are either played in by people that came by or they're sampled and done by keyboards. So yeah, it took, took, a fair amount of time you know I, okay i think i mentioned in the notes that i think i started it three years before it got finished so on and off you know it's one of those things where right i just i had a i had a, a bunch of ideas about a certain style of something i wanted to do and i just got on with it and finished it off and i've okay. got a, i've got another one in the in the pipeline which hopefully i was hoping to release a a couple of tracks while we're still in lockdown as mm. a kind of as a kind of you know putting a marker down and going sure. yeah I did, I did this and i've released, right. recorded it and it's released all during lockdown yeah. so there's, there's a piece um at the moment which is called armistice which is just about a recording of we have a remembrance for for the, the dead you know mm -hmm. and it's a world war thing uh, and we have it in november and I've just recorded the silence over over London. They have a sort of two yeah. minute sort of memorial thing, and I've worked with silence and some trumpet playing. And anyway, that's that's yeah. coming. That's okay. in the pipeline. Not Good. very pop, not very poppy, John. But you know, well, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's still beautiful. It's yeah. still beautiful. Okay, what all were you involved in? as far as the Peter Gabriel So album? Because I think you only really produced, is it Red Rain? Is that right? Yeah.
But I'll tell you this straight off, John. Very little. Um, really? Yeah, I know. I know Peter from um, quite a long time, bit, bit before So was being done, because hmm. he's because he's from the same. You know, Salisbury Hill. I can effectively look out of my house and see Salisbury Hill from. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's very much a Bath thing, and I got to know Peter. I got on very well with him, and he actually played me Sledgehammer when when that was just a, a really just a sort of basic um, shuffle. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, yeah, I might be doing something with this next week. You know, I said, well, great, let me know how that goes. And then he said, I've got a, a piece and uh, I just can't get the, the spinal column of it right. And I, I came in and worked on the rhythm. So I sat uh, and worked on the uh, like drum programming the drum mm. machine, um, to get all the pieces to glue together and make sense. So that's what I, that's what I did on that. And okay. I've done, across time, I've done various other little bits of um, rhythm work with Peter. He's been over to the studio here and I um, showed him things with um, using like filtered drum loops and stuff. I think um, a piece was used on um, before last, I think he used a bit of something I'd done. Um, so yeah, I, I have a I have a good relationship with Peter and I do bits and pieces every now and again, but in the main, in the main, I didn't do much at all. I was, I was hanging around, but I didn't, I didn't actually do, you know, I mean, you know, know, he was in his farm and, uh, you know, comes in from the studio and, you know, says, uh, (laughs) not quite sure what I want to write a song about today. Uh, And then, and then the next thing, you know, he's got, lyrics to sledgehammer coming it's extraordinary yeah to watch watch him work you know yeah i um i had his drummer jerry Murata on here a few a few months ago and jerry painted a very interesting picture of peter that makes a lot of sense and i get the impression that peter kind of suffers from a lot of analysis paralysis as we say he thinks about things so much more and and finally ultimately gets to writing the song when all all else all the other thinking has been done you know he yeah. can't overthink it any longer yeah yeah that's very true um i remember we were driving somewhere and he said um yeah so i've got i've got about three album ideas and one of them is to sort of send an album off around the world and they have a rough kind of song and you send it off to people and they add to it and uh mm. um, put some more tunes and do some singing, then it moves on to somewhere else, then it finally comes back and the album's kind of gets completed. And I and I, I remember saying to him, but it, it's a wonderful idea, but do you not do you not feel that you can't at this point make a simple album yeah. where you go in with a group and just record twelve tunes yeah. and it'd be amazing. You have yeah. to complicate things, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he went, yeah. that's it yeah that's That's, it because you know like you were saying about how there can be a dichotomy you know Mm -hmm. you've got a pop Mm -hmm. version of somebody or you've got a complex be it jazz Mm -hmm. or science music or maths music or whatever the hell it is you've got this place the thing with peter is he can overthink things but if you and i said to him if you've got I forget the guy's name, Michael somebody. He was Prince's drummer. Mm. Big guy. He played on that track. Korea. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm blanking on the guy's name. Yeah, I am. He's Michael, I think his name is. Yes. Somewhere. 
But the Steve guy, Theron, anyway, I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember. But that guy, he would play a simple beat, like a, just a, like a boofed, baffed, boofed, and it would just be God's own work. Mm. And you've got to get a fantastic bass player, you know, and a keyboard player, and you could do your version of soul music because he's obsessed with Heard It Through the Grapevine. Mm. There is so much Heard It Through the Grapevine DNA mm-hmm. his work. It's absurd. Wow. Wow. And I just thought if he got a simple, fantastic band that just jumped, he yeah. could just sing his heart out on top of it. It'd be like simple, you know. Yeah. He doesn't seem capable of doing that. Minimal. If he'd made a, if he could yeah. make a minimal record without, you know, fifteen layers of stuff, which is mm-hmm. beautiful and amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's kind of done that. You know, yeah. he has been the king of atmosphere and amazing drama mm-hmm. in in layers and layers and layers of beautiful things. But I'd love to hear him just kicking it with, yeah. with a small band. Yeah. Same. Yeah, just just knock something out. You're capable. Don't overthink yeah. it. You know, yeah. just see what we see what simplicity sounds like and feels yeah. like. You know, yeah, because you you yeah. might forget you're absolutely brilliant at it. Yeah, that's true. You gotta tell me about you know working with Paul McCartney and Flowers in the Dirt. Now I had, I think it was, uh, I think it was Jerry Murata, the drummer. Oh, yeah. uh, I talked to him recently, and he was kind of explaining to me because, from an outsider's perspective, you would think a collaboration with Elvis and Paul would just be a match made in heaven. And he was explaining why that wasn't the case because individually, neither one of them really needs the other person. They're so good at what they do. Yes. And so, yes, it sounds good on paper, but when they came together, it was like, I, I'm fine without you. You know, maybe. Yeah. You know, maybe not that crudely said, but that's kind of the idea. But, you know, um, there's an interesting thing here, because I think that Paul, um, when he was working, I mean, I'm speculating furiously here, but give me just a minute on this. Sure. Um, if you think about Paul doing what he was doing, let's say when the Beatles were doing the White Album, mm. 
I mean, he was doing things like Martha, my dear, which were amazing. Yeah. But he was yeah. doing that fully in light of the fact that John and George were hovering around. Even mm. if their input was less on that, he mm. was still doing stuff. And I think he liked them being around because when they're not around, the, the, the quality of his work shifts. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think he probably liked the I mean, he told me that he liked Elvis being around because Elvis wasn't a pushover. Mm. Wow. Okay, nice. I see that. Yeah. So, so um, you know, basically, I think he liked the idea of Elvis as a kind of strong guy who, uh -huh. who knew what he, you know, he knows about chords, he knows about lyrics, and obviously somebody that Paul rated as a, a strong artist. So I think, he, I think he was quite into working with a strong artist that would sort of, you know, shout back a bit and do a yeah. bit of a John. I think yeah. the problem with that, I think the problem with that is that Elvis probably may have detected the fact that Paul wanted him around as a bit of a John. And I think mm. probably Elvis wouldn't, I don't know. I don't imagine he would have thought that was great, but huh. um, I'm speculating, you know? Yeah. Are you yeah. able to be a boss in those situations? You know, are you able to say, Paul, that's not working? Or are you able to say, you know, I don't like this one, Paul, let's try it again. Or are you able to think like that or communicate like yes. that to him? Yes. I mean, uh -huh. it's a funny thing, John. I, if I just go back to, I mean, obviously growing up as a kid, adoring the Beatles and just, you know, thinking they were just amazing, you know, uh -huh. and, and all aspects of the cultural sense of Liverpool and the, the hip scene in London and the whole, you know, the whole thing. And then Sergeant Pepper and, you know, uh, the world stage for things like All You Need Is Love. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, unbelievably important. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, and a lot of people... Um, in Britain, we regard the Beatles of having as having written the book. You know, they yeah, wrote it yeah. about they wrote it about doing the, a most dumbass kids song, which turns out to be Yellow Submarine, which is amazing. Yeah, you know, they wrote the book on playing on the roof. You know, yeah, I know you yeah. two and a few other people. The only book, they, the only chapter they never wrote was was unfortunately was being it was having a you know reunited. Yeah, you know, true. Because, because obviously John got killed and it just yeah. it could never happen. So the only one thing they never really wrote a chapter on was, was uh, you know, coming back together and, and working together. Good point. Other than that, as far as I'm concerned, they, you know, they, 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 they did it all. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I was working at um, Air Studios in London, in central London. And uh, I forget, I actually forget what project I was working on, but Paul... Uh, was working in the studio opposite and um, Paul would um, I, I sort of and Linda was around uh -huh. and uh, they used to you know they'd be in the they'd be in the studio main complex and I'd see I'd see them up sort of in the cafe cup of tea kind of thing and then you know Paul would um, stick his head around the door and say good morning everybody and then sort of smile and wander off and do his own thing it was you know fantastically <laughs> sort of affable and friendly and you know yeah. chat to anybody he was great uh -huh. in that respect i remember on one occasion i was working on a, a bit of a bass part and he walked in he said oh sorry am i putting you off you know and i <laughs> and i and i said well actually you are but not because you're a bass player right you know? and he was kind of he was very self-aware of his own kind of as you'd expect him to be you know yeah yeah. So I I really I liked him. I I, I like Linda a lot. We got on. We used to chat about 
all sorts of bits and pieces. And everyone yeah, I've talked I, to has said that she was just the nicest lady. That yeah, she was, and she she was. She was very astute. You know, it wasn't like yeah. she was like nice. You know, she she um, she was bright and had you know had an awareness of things. No, she was yeah. great. You know, and we hung out, and she took she actually took a couple of photos of me, which is wonderful. You know, so anyway, I'd, I'd see Paul and I'd see Linda, and that was it. And then uh -huh. a, little, a little while later, via management and all the usual channels, I got a, a message saying that Paul had basically uh, was at the tail end of his record and he had a song that hadn't really got the time to finish, wasn't sure if it was right and all the rest of it. And would I give it a listen? Uh, of course, I said yes, <laughs> and <laughs> as one would. Of course, and, right. Um, and I thought, oh, this is potentially great, but there's a, there's a whole middle middle eight, middle 12, middle 16, depending, uh -huh. uh, missing, you know. And I, that was conveyed back. And, and he, the next thing I knew, he'd sent over, uh, you know, two-inch reels, two-inch copy reels of, of the track. And he said, do what you want. And so I, at a certain strategic point in the track, cut the tape and inserted 12 bars of time, essentially time code, you know, time uh -huh. Little drum boxy thing, and then cut back to the the track. And uh, he came down to the studio, and I said, "Paul, I've just I've actually just made a landing strip of, of twelve bars that feels like it could work for you to to play something." And uh, we had a little keyboard set up, and and it was extraordinary. John, he said, "You know, we'll run the yeah, run the tape. Let's have a little uh -huh. look." And he he played along off the cliff as it were straight into this 12 bars of just tick oh, wow. and just made something up on the spot and brought the chords around and then finished and it completed as he came out the other side uh -huh. and we, we stopped the tape and said well you know you know that's what i'd do and um i couldn't believe it and wow. we he just on the spot made up a, a yeah. effectively a middle eight but it was an extended middle eight and uh you know he we ran the tape a few more times and he he sort of played in a bit more melody. And then I think we then went to, to his studio down in Sussex and um, the guitars and all the necessary bits were put in to make it all make sense. And we kind of rebuilt the track. And uh, I think my entire time with Paul um, from sort of getting the tapes from him to it being all done was three months. Ah. So I was kind of, I was at his place in Sussex a bit and um, we then went and did a bit of recording at Olympic in Barnes, very famous uh -huh. Uh -huh. Hendrix, Stones, Beatles studio in, in South London, uh, where we recorded another track, which was a track called Figure of Eight.
Yeah. And Which artist, song was the first one you were talking about, by the way? The first one was a track called Motor of Love. Oh, um, which, uh, yeah, you know, it was one of those things that just went on and on and took longer and longer. And he wanted to sort of layer things and make it, you know, we worked on it quite hard, you know. So, yeah. And then and then he uh, he went off to the Caribbean and, and sort of said, oh, well, I've got a kind of running order if, you, if you're interested. And we talked about that. And I said, I said, honestly, Paul, you should end the side with well, I forget what it was at the time. But I was saying, I think, you know, it's essentially right. But. Yeah, I think he should do this, and perhaps and he went. Yeah, okay, yeah, that sounds good. And then he called and said, "Look, it's being cut up at Abbey Road. Do you want to? Do you want to go and have a hang out and make sure uh -huh. it all goes well?" So I went up there and I, I, I attended the cut, and that was it. Wow! And I had an amazing, amazing time. I mean, he he invited me to his house. We had supper and um, played games with. Um, I think it was James and Mary. I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh uh, wow! And Linda was around, and it's you know, yeah, and uh, yeah, no, she, you know, they were they were fantastic. This was uh, at their house down in the, on, you know, near the coast, right? And uh, yeah, it was just absolutely, wow. absolutely lovely, you know. Yeah, and wow. uh, it was funny. It's funny, John, because he went to a a British grammar school, so it's not like a, it's not like a, uh, if you like, it's not like a a blue collar working class school, but it's also not like a, an upper class school. It's uh -huh. kind of, you know, middle, middle class kind of okay. good school. And it's actually very, very similar to the school I went to. Really? And so, yeah. So we prepared, you know, we compared notes about, you know, um, boys grammar schools. Uh -huh. And we, we had, we were joking about teachers and stuff. And he was yeah. just very, you know he's he's great at um, you know talking about the past and yeah. you know, chatting about Ringo and you know you name it. I mean if you, if you get right. going, he's 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 a chataholic. You know. Yeah, I've heard him talk, uh, or I've heard I should say I've heard others talk about him that he recognizes that he is Paul McCartney and interacting with him. He he's a regular guy, but his his effect on other people is so great that he does his best to live up to what that what the image of Paul McCartney must be, and yeah, so he's always, always yeah he always tries to be a gentleman, he always tries to be kind, and he always tries to give you a moment. You know, it's, yeah, we don't need to take all day here, but sure, I'll pose for yourself. Not that he poses yeah. for selfies, but whatever it is, he wants to make this interaction really meaningful because he knows how much it matters to the other people. Yes, I think that's very, very true. And and the other thing I think, and I witnessed it while I was with him, we went to a pub one evening, and I, I was aware of the fact that people, you know, the, the kind of the minute the pub knew he was in there, you know, it was kind of like the atmosphere changed and it was a bit excitable, people coming over and stuff. And and I, I just became very aware of the fact that for him, I would imagine 90% of the conversations he has in any, in any given day with with people that want to know what it was like to be in the Beatles or what what he's up to or how he is asking yeah. questions and I think for that he's got a brilliant way of uh, a lot of it you know the expression off pat where mm. where things are kind of there's a kind of nature to him that's a bit rehearsed okay in, in order yeah. to just get through all yeah. the conversations he's likely to have you know yeah. so he'll have little anecdotal stories that yeah. that you can sort of take down off the shelf 
But yeah. um, I, I couldn't possibly blame him for that. I mean, you can no. imagine being that well known. Oh, yeah. And, and that approach to the whole time. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so true. But that's uh, a kind of that's a kind of a private John. That's a kind of a private kind of uh, conversation in a way. In as much as that was kind of how I was with him, you know, we we yeah. did have a great time. You know, good. If you understand um, what I'm saying, sure. And being able to, re I, you know, I don't know. You were talking about pulling out kind of your bag of ch tricks when it comes to conversations. Who knows if he's well, relating to everybody he works with on the way he was relating with you about school days and. Well, um, you know, the thing. I mean, the thing is that um, when he was doing vocals, you know, and I was saying, "Yeah, let's go again, Paul." That's you know, you can, you can, we can get that better. Uh -huh. And he's very good at the recording process and I don't think it comes as any big problem or any shape yeah. um, for someone to say actually let's go again that's we can get that okay better. and okay. if you if you know the temperature in which you deliver that it's easy for him to uh, you know respond accordingly so it's that that bit of it's not an issue except okay. there was a there was a funny moment and I think he probably does this you know, I won't be the first time uh -huh. but saying, no, no, that's, that's, that's gone off the boil a bit. Let's, let's, let's try that again. And, and he sort of said, well, you know, if you think you can do better, you come down here and do it. And, uh -huh. he, was laugh and he was laughing sort of to the room. And it was, it was a, it was his own parody on him talking to George Martin when uh, George Martin at one point had said to him, well, Paul, I don't think that's very good. I think you should do it again. And he was in a, particularly arsy mood and he said to George Martin well you know if you think you can do it you know if you think I can do it better you come and do it you know and right. he was being a bit arsy and that's legendary that comment so uh -huh. I think he was throwing that in as a kind of um part of a conversation builder where you'd you know where he'd be at liberty to say that and you'd be at liberty to say it something wasn't good enough right but it but it was very it was very loose it was it wasn't it was not, nothing tense about it you know and uh, I think another point, he sort of said something like, you know, it, it was a little bit more frustrating. He said, oh, what's wrong with that one? He goes, don't uh -huh. even answer. Don't even answer. I know what's wrong with it. I know what's wrong with it. So, I mean, you, and you're dealing with, you know, I was, I was helping him with vocals and stuff. And you're dealing with a guy who's recorded uh -huh. so much stuff. I mean, uh -huh. you, you think about the hours the guy's recorded and recorded amazing stuff. I mean, it's, you know, he kind of knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, but there again, I think he just wanted someone to go, yeah, come on, let's keep up, keep going. Well, yeah, good. it's good. You yeah. Know? So I think, and I, to be honest, that in itself isn't, isn't a bad thing. And I've come, you know, I've come across that. I've come across that before. You know, yeah. um, I was telling you, uh, I worked with Peter Gabriel and I, I did a, a charity uh well not a charity it was a when uh, princess diana died there was a, a a double album released and it was a lot of artists mm -hmm. that had submitted music or recorded something as to commemorate the, you know the passing of uh, princess diana and i i did a track with peter i picture you
Basically, it's basically him and me. I mean, it's it's a really. I remember it, that album floating around, but I've never heard it. It's one track, and it was a, like a bass synth part I played, and a and a program of unbelievably minimal drum beat, huh. and uh-huh. then he played uh, a big fat synth keyboard. But he like we did a line drive into the desk and had it so hot it was distorting, like harmonic uh-huh. distorting, and. Working with Peter, other things similar cropped up where, you know, he's recorded so much stuff himself, he knows what he's doing, but he was still very happy to have someone say, come on, let's get this bit done. And yeah, yeah, that's great. Keep going. That's great. That's great, Peter. Let's just try that bit again and, and, and kind of wade through it with him. And I think... You know, certainly that's the same with Robert when I worked with Robert Plant. That's my next you know, question, if approach, yeah. If you approach it with, um, you know, like, I know you know what you're doing. I'm not trying to tell you something you don't know here. Yeah, yeah. Um, as, long, as, as, as long as you're not trying to say, hey, you know something? And being a smart ass, right. people that have done this a million times will be quite happy to be told something isn't right. Good, good. They're and not that, looking for a yes of, man. That's, kind of, that's the kind of human interface aspect. You kind yeah. of learn that. You know, you learn that people will, will take guidance and they will kind of um allow you to to run the thing yeah if you kind of i am one if you know what you're doing right and you can and you can express it and approach it in a way that's not taking the piss as it were right right if you if you know what you're doing and you're you're sensible with it it's fine yeah so let's talk about robert plant he was going to be my next one uh animations is a great album Okay, so the, I got the call, as it were, that perhaps um, would you be interested in maybe doing a couple of things with Robert from 
uh, a guy I've worked with on and off for some time, a guy called David Bates, who was at that time doing the A&R work for Robert. And he, and he just said, would you like to meet Robert and see if there's any kind of chemistry and blah, blah, and the whole thing. So I said, yeah, of course, I'd love to. Um, so we met at Olympic Studios in Barnes and uh, just for a kind of cursory chat and a kind of hello and all this kind of stuff. And um, also at that meeting was a guy called Charlie Jones, who is actually the bass player on that record in the main. And also um, Robert's son-in-law, because he's married to Carmen, okay. who's Robert, uh -huh. Robert's daughter. And Charlie, I kind of, and I, I didn't know very well, but I kind of met him before, because he lives down, he, he lives in Bath. He lives, he's a, in the same area of the country that I'm in. Uh -huh. And so I kind of knew him a bit. and But anyway, he was amazingly, um, Charlie, this is, was amazingly positive about me getting involved and helping it all make sense. And, uh, because what had happened is they'd started recording and there are a lot of people all vying for Robert's attention. Uh, lots of musicians who wanted to sort of co-write with him and be, you know, a key guitarist uh -huh. or a key keyboard player in his band and, there was a lot, and drummer for that matter, there was uh -huh. a lot of people that were vying for space and attention. And the recording sessions, as I understand it, the recording sessions, uh, it's not that they were bad, it's just that they were, it wasn't very cohesive. Um, lots of people had different ideas. And I think I was asked to reassess everything and sort of decide what we could keep, what could be added to, what could be re-recorded and kind of just make it all make sense. Uh, which is what I did. So it took me quite some time, and I worked um, pretty closely with Robert trying to make that record make sense. And, uh, you know, we got there in the end. I got on yeah. very well with Robert. Um, you know, I've seen him subsequently. He, he, he's recorded um, quite a few bits and pieces. I've got a studio here where I live, and he's come down here and done all manner of stuff. And Really? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Robert Plant's yeah, been loves, at your house. Loves, That's just loves, crazy. I beg your pardon? Uh, Robert Plant has been in your house. Oh, on many soulful occasions, yes. Gosh, uh, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, and he's, I mean, I said in, a, in an interview fairly recently about Robert, and for me, Robert's kind of, I mean, he's multi-talented, and I mean, he really is. He's an incredible artist. He is not just a singer. He's yeah. ways, ways more than that. He's visionary. There's a whole bunch to Robert that's absolutely fascinating. And he's very funny, too. So he's, yeah. you know, he's well, he's well educated and, and, you know, bright. He's just a bright, funny, interesting guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I had some amazing times just hanging out, chatting with him and talking about all manner of stuff. Um, you know, not, not all to do with, Led Zeppelin or anything. Uh -huh. We had one argument about something, and what it was was um, we were uh, sort of discussing how some guitars might go on a certain track, or the attitude, or the sort of ethos behind something. And I was saying, yeah, yeah, it'd be great if we had this sort of stuff. And and he didn't really, he wasn't that interested in my argument. And he sort of said, well, you know, back in the Zep days. And I was going, well, hold on a minute, you know, whenever whenever it suits you to mention Zep. That's uh -huh. all well and good. You can, but you know, I said the thing is that you know I, 
I I can't mention Zep, you know. But uh-huh. let me tell you something. Let me tell you something, Robert. I'll tell you something about Led Zeppelin you have no idea about. And that is that I was at the Albert Hall in London in 1969, centre of the fifth row, being blown away by your band. You've never experienced that. Oh, and he, no and way. He, and he went, oh, you fucker. And started, <laughs> la- and started, start, started laughing. Oh, that's the best. Oh, it's so great. Well, I'm curious about something. You mentioning this. Now, obviously, you when you work with someone like Paul or Plant, and they've got yeah. these pedigrees, yeah. um, they expect questions. I'm curious if these guys ever ask you about your history, because, uh, you know, as much as those two are legends and I love them, Chris yes. Hughes is more important to the fabric of my life than either of those guys are, to be completely well, honest. It's fa- John, it's fantastic. Thank you for saying that. Um, it's it's, thank well, you. it's, it's true. I, I, I mean, you're, you're in the sweet spot of all the, yeah. this music that I grew up on. I wonder if they ever come to you and they're in awe that I'm this is. The drummer for Adam and the Ants. Sure, I mean, they we say those things. Yes, yeah, we have we have had conversations. Um, yes, we've had conversations. Okay. I had conversations with Peter, although Peter's kind of uh, out of the three of those guys. I suppose he's kind of witnessed um, more of what I've done. Yeah, in as much probably. as I mean, we did some of the Tears for Fears stuff was done uh, at Peter's studio, and he was around occasionally and. So he's kind of, I think Peter was more aware of what I was capable of doing on a, on a sort of physical level in terms yeah. of, you know, uh, playing a, a keyboard or, or playing drums or something like that, um, I guess. Uh, and um, Robert, certainly Robert knew I played drums because he, you know, he asked me to play, I, I played drums on 29 Palms. So, oh. I mean, he was, he was aware, he was aware of the fact that, um, you know, I, I can play drums, mm-hmm. and you know he he you know he would yes he would ask me what I was up to and what okay. what's been going on. Okay. Um, I think Paul probably less, although I, I did get on with Paul on another level. As I said, you know historically we talked about bits of Beatles stuff, you know, and also we talked about our schooling, which I mentioned before. So he you know he was he was interested. It wasn't just all about him. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And a couple of times. Uh, I mean, yeah, because because there was a I was working on a weekend at his place, and he he went off. He was doing something with Linda on the weekend, and you know the pair of them phoned me from their car, and said, mm-hmm. "Hey, you know, how's it going?" And, and they were like just very friendly. And and um, what you've been up to? Have you done anything interesting? Actually, you know, hey, we might just swing by, and they did. They came by, and wow. you know, so it was nice. You know, they wow. were they were they were um, interested and uh, good. You know. Good. I just wonder if it that kind of... One of those, it wasn't one of those things where, you know, you're working with a legend and you find that they're very difficult because they're yeah. non-community. I mean, a very good mate of mine, Mick Glossop, who's a fine engineer, recorded Bowie and Zappa and all manner mm-hmm. of people. He said that he he worked as an engineer um, at Zappa's place for Zappa and, said, and he said he never had a conversation with him other, huh. than, other than work. Yeah, yeah. Frank Zappa okay. never said, uh, well, you know, what part of England are you from or, or yeah. anything? You know, <laughs> but having said that, John, I, I know there's also conversations that weren't had between, I think, George and Ringo 
never had a conversation with Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer. Really? The, yeah, yeah. They never, they never really did. Paul, wow. Yeah, they just took him as a an engineer, and and uh, I mean, wow. I I did a lot of work at Abbey Road, up, obviously ways after the Beatles, and you do hear a lot of the old guys that were hanging around that were engineers were tape ops and young kids on yeah. some of those Beatles sessions, and they and they weren't the nicest of sessions, has to be said. Huh. Wow. But, but I wasn't okay. there, so that's yeah. speculation, you know. Okay. Yeah, I just wondered if the if the adulation is ever reciprocated. Uh, I would think Paul, we don't have to get, to, I mean, uh, I would just, I my understanding, my impression of Paul is that he tr tries to kind of keep his finger on the pulse of the music that's happening right then. And so sure. I would have imagined him being aware of not just the ants, but also, you know, whatever Wang Chung's doing or whatever sure. Tears for Fears is doing. Sure. So. I, I, I think, yeah, I guess he must have been, yeah. He would have okay. he would have wanted to know. But you know, there again, you know, he may have done a load of that in the background and not want yeah. to bring it up. Right, right. It's hard to know. Yeah. But he was respectful. He didn't, he never treated me like a sort of an underling. Good, or anything. Okay. It was very, very, uh, it's all matey and very nice. So uh, that was good okay. enough for me, you know. Yeah, good. Okay. Yeah. All right, I just have a couple more questions. First of all, no, uh, no we don't, I don't know anything about this band, but I will just say, to put in a plug, I really like the Electric Soft Parade album, Holes in the Wall. that one i i could ask for questions but i don't know them well enough to like you know be super interested in them but I, that sure. is a great album and i own it Thank and you. i love it and so wanted to put in a little plug for that okay last one do you another similar thing did you are you playing drums on enya's watermark album somewhere yes i am really yeah <laughs> was it the storms of africa or something yes yeah Storm that song's so great
thank you. I, I really enjoyed playing that. I think I played while I was uh, at the studio where she was doing that record. I think in total I might have played on um, maybe two or three tracks. And I think we came back and focused on Storms. Yeah. Yeah. I did I did a fair amount of uh, of sort of constructor wow. kit on that one. I, I, wow. I did quite a lot of um trying to get the drums to speak in a kind of rolling way. Yeah, yeah. very enjoyable. She's very nice. In fact, the whole family because she's from the Clanad family. Right. And her sister Moya is uh, also a fab singer and she's really lovely. They're really lovely people. Yeah. But the whole of the Clanad mob yeah i um that kind of just shocked me and i because you know she's so mysterious you she yes. only pops up once in a while and yeah. um edit the music itself i mean that out say what you want everybody owns that album everyone has a soft spot for that album yeah um and so it's a classic but it you wouldn't i wouldn't think that the that you would have been a part of that but so how did that were you just in the neighboring studio or how did, did you get a call from Enya saying hey chris will you come help me with this thing no, what happened I think, I think what it was um she had an idea of how she wanted the track cuz i mean she's by there's no way she's a kind of sit at the back expecting everyone to do it for her she's she comes from a very musical family and she was working with a couple of people and one of the guys uh, who was engineering and a bit of co-write and a bit of working with her said, you know, I know someone that can come and do some drums on this that would be absolutely spot on. And uh, so I got a call and said, yeah, do you want to come down and uh, we're working with Enya and she's got a track that's kind of got a spiritual thing and we want a kind of rolling, gentle kind of tom-tom yeah. drum, African-y kind of vibe. And, um, yeah, I got down there and, um, it was just a joy to do. Wow. You know. Wow. I did That's little wild. bits of percussion on a couple of other bits and pieces, which are sort of probably yeah. un uncredited. I mean, they're not important, but yeah. So I, I, I spent a bit of time down there and it was lovely. Why do you think it is that she disappears? Why do you think it is that she keeps, you know, she's so private? I think she comes from, I, I don't know is the answer, but yeah, my okay. guess, okay. my guess would be, um, she comes from a big family mm. and she probably just enjoys her own, you know, her own yeah. being. And I don't think she's needy in the sense of she wants to be with lots of people. So I think yeah. she, she lives quite a, a, a private, okay. as I understand, quite yeah. a private life. And I think she does her music uh, when she wants and when, when the muses are there, I guess. Yeah. You know, like I think some people are obsessive and they will make music every hour of the day if they can right. and then they'll want to perform it every evening of the week and there's other people that uh, treat the sort of um, idea of composition and music as something a bit more sacred and do it once in a blue moon and it feels good for them you know yeah so i guess she's like that i guess she just does it when she when she wants and when it feels good well, and people continuously buying Watermark will afford you the uh, the opportunity to make music when you feel like it, you know? I think so, yeah. yeah. I, think yeah. So. I mean, if you make music of that caliber, then it helps. <laughs> if you're making yeah. exceptional music, yeah. but maybe some, of that's it. maybe some of that music is exceptional because she takes her time. Yeah. It's a very private and personal thing, you know? Yeah, okay. 
last one. Did you produce uh, Burning Flame by Vitamin Z? I did. I love that I, song. I love I, that song. A, and that's a cute little song. Yes, that's it is. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it is. Yeah, I did, okay. and um, yeah, it was done. The two, the two guys from, from Vitamin Z, or Vitamin Z, as they're Vitamin called. Vitamin Z. Ooh, that's weird. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's us Brits for you. That's how <laughs> I we, know. That's how we sound that letter at the end of the alphabet. <laughs> oh, I know. It and doesn't vitamin. rhyme. It doesn't rhyme with T or C. You know. <laughs> that's great. I did that record. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's interesting because the guy I did that record with is a guy called Ross Cullum, who was the guy that suggested I play drums on the Enya record. Oh, so no way. Yeah, so there's a link there. Yeah. Great. Oh, that's great. Okay, we're going to close it out with that song then because I love that song. All right, Chris, last question. Do you have what's your favorite story when you look back over this crazy career and uh, all the. Man, it's so varied and diverse. Do you have like a favorite moment, a favorite thing that you're just like, I can't believe that happened to me? Um, do you know, I I don't have a no, I don't okay. have a one specific moment. I've I've had I have enjoyed virtually all my career. I, yeah. I honestly I've really I you know, uh, when I was in the studio more than I am these days, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I love playing live. I just love it. So I, they're probably, I could get off the phone now, John, and I could think, mm -hmm. oh, God, yeah, well, there was that sort of pinnacle, that moment or that story. But to be honest, no, I just loved all of it, really. Okay, okay. Well, uh, I mean, it's a dream. You've been able to work with so many great people. And as I said, of all of them, you're one of the ones that matters most to me. So, that's uh, John, that's very kind. Thank you. It's so true. Um, thank you for talking with me, Chris. You're just a legend in my life. Huge. John, keep, let's, let's keep in touch. There you have it, Chris Hughes. That one was huge for me. I love him so much. And the work he's put out there, those albums mean the world to me. Now, let me give you unfortunate, a kind of unfortunately sad postscript on all this. So the second half, that second conversation I mentioned that half kicks in around Paul McCartney, that was done early on a Friday morning. And I happened to have the day off work. And so after we finished talking, I laid back down for a couple of hours. And when I woke up, my phone was blowing up because Rupert Hine had just died. That's how I found out from all of you, thankfully. And uh, I mentioned, I pinged Chris on Facebook and was like, look, I'm Thank you so much for talking to me. Unfortunately, I just found out Rupert Hine died. Pat him on the show a couple of times. Chris says, I know. And as soon as we were done talking, I ran over to their house to be with Faye, Rupert's wife. And I just think that's really interesting that, first of all, it's a brotherhood. These people that I love so much and they're friends and they know each other and they matter to each other too. That matters to me. And secondly, I'm just imagining, you know, Chris how, uh, what a pro he was to talk to me when I'm sure his mind was elsewhere, because as soon as we're done, he's going to go visit the widow of his friend. Anyway, I, I love all of these people so much, so much. This music has made my life. Um, next week, I'm not entirely sure what we're going to go with, to be honest, because I'm in Utah all this week on vacation with my family and when I get back I'm not, it will depend on how much time I have to get the next episode ready um, it's probably going to be a key member of two very important bands 
One or the other. I'm not entirely sure which one we're going to go with. Like I said, it'll just depend on timing. But it's going to be good either way, because they always are. Let's be honest. Okay? Anyway, huge thanks to Yan the Man Makevich. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do, for being my partner in all of this. Guys, you can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. Send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at the Hustle Pod. You can also join Patreon if you want to contribute to these interviews. For five bucks a month, you can set it and forget it. I'll tell you who I'm talking to. You can submit questions if you want. We'll do our best to work them into the interviews, okay? And, uh, of course, enjoy Vitamin Z. I- I'll never get used to calling Vitamin Z Vitamin Z. It'll never happen. But I love Burning Flame. All right, thanks, everybody.